from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. We have a big bonus episode today. I'm handing over the reins for this one to Mr. Brian Goldsmith. It is all you, baby. So who did you talk to? I talked to Graham Allison, who has written the Foreign Policy Book of the Year. It's all about whether the U.S. and a rising China are headed ultimately for war, which is a subject that hasn't gotten very much attention. Graham has been an advisor to the last seven or eight secretaries of defense. He knows a lot about nuclear terrorism, about the North Korea. Korean challenge, about what's happening with the Trump administration and the Russians. So we covered a wide range of issues. And I think people who are interested in foreign policy are going to really like this conversation. I'm excited to hear it. And I think that it comes at a very important time. He sounds like a real smarty pants, by the way, Brian. But I'm really excited to hear his take on the president's recent trip abroad, on some of the things that Angela Merkel has been saying, as you mentioned, what's going on with Russia, and kind of going deeper into why this should spark outrage if, in fact, the Trump campaign colluded with the Russians. And, of course, an, uh, a very tense situation in North Korea with them launching that missile that landed in the Sea of Japan. I mean, there's so much going on internationally. And I welcome somebody smart to give me a deeper understanding and better perspective of all the things that are going on. Well, needless to say, I could completely geek out with Graham Allison about all those topics and a lot more. So take a listen. Dr. Graham Allison, my former professor at the Kennedy School, thank you so much for doing the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I read this new book with great interest and fascination because it really steps back from the day-to-day and asks a really big question, which is, are the United States and China inevitably heading to war? And and what is what is the answer to that question? Well, that's, I think, the $64 or $64 trillion question. <laughs> and I think the answer is yes and no, and in case it seems too professorial. Uh, I think... Uh, that's not a very satisfying answer. <laughs> not, not very satisfying, but it's true. So uh, in this case, I believe business as usual 
will likely produce history as usual. And in that case, that would be a war between China and the U.S. That would be catastrophic for both. That's the yes and no uh, is that, uh, as the saying goes, only those who fail to study history are condemned to repeat it. And there are enough ingredients in the relationship to uh, uh, imagine that far-sighted statescraft, both in Washington and Beijing, could find a way to live together to mutual benefit. And speaking of learning from the past, you studied in this book uh, 16 occasions in which over the past 500 years, a rising power threatened to displace an existing superpower. And you found that in 12 of those cases, the result was war. Four of those cases, the two parties avoided war. What were the distinctions between them? Well, great question. So in the 12 cases, uh, normally they succumb to the normal pressures and normal misunderstandings and normal mistakes of a rising power and a ruling power. So a rising power thinks, I'm bigger, I'm stronger, my interests deserve more weight than they got when I was smaller and weaker. I deserve more say, more sway. So when an upstart threatens to an incumbent, you get a rising power syndrome and a ruling power syndrome. The ruling power looks and says, wait a minute, the way things were, were great. They were the only circumstance in which you got a chance to grow up. You should be grateful. You should even help support them. And your actions now seem to me to be threatening. Uh, so that dynamic is the something you see in the cases of failure. And I would say the dramatic case of that and most relevant for us today is the circumstances that got us to World War I. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, as you say, what about the cases in which war was averted? And a very interesting case, the U.S. rose to rival and then ultimately uh, overtake Britain at the beginning of the 20th century. Britain found a way to adapt and adjust that was so nuanced and subtle that they what was vital for Britain on the one hand, but they accommodated the U.S. in other areas and so smoothly that Americans came to understand our interests as largely aligned with Britain. So then when World War I came, the U.S. was Britain's lifeline, both with supplies and with money while the war was going on until when the U.S. entered World War I, we naturally entered as Britain's ally. And then between the wars, the U.S.-British relationship thickened. And then when World War II came, the U.S. was again the essential ally for Britain. So that was a great case of wise adaptation. When you think about the case you just described of the U.S. and Britain, Britain was, in a sense, managing its own decline. It was deteriorating as the great empire of the world as the U.S. was coming up. And I'd imagine a lot of Americans would reject that comparison and would be made very uncomfortable by it. And so when you think about those two things, on the one hand, war with China more likely than not. On the other hand, a lot of Americans not feeling comfortable with managing peacefully our decline vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese. Are, are we just headed sort of inexorably toward a, a big conflict there? Well, I think Thucydides would say there's an unstoppable rising China on a collision course with an immovable ruling America. 
That would be business as usual and history as usual. But if we look at the cases of success, I mean, a more positive example that maybe is more appealing as we think about it, and no case is exactly like the other. But in the case of the Cold War, the U.S. faced a surging Soviet Union. When John Kennedy became president of the U.S. in 1961, he believed, and conventional wisdom believed, the Soviet Union was going to overtake the U.S. as the dominant economy by the end of the 70s. Again, history, people can't even believe that today, but that was a fact. You can go back and look at the economics textbook of the time, the Samuelson textbook in 1964. It says, by the end of the 70s, Soviet Union will overtake the U.S. Which is so, why analysts should never make these predictions. Well, we, but we have to live in a world where uncertain as we are, we have to have expectations. So for sure, the Soviet Union was thought of and appeared to be a existential threat to the U.S. Rather than having a war with the, with the Soviet Union, people invented a whole new crazy idea. How about Cold War? So in my column, this figures in the no war, because war in this is only a metaphor. Cold War was uh, competition in every dimension by every means except bombs and bullets killing thousands of each other. And we had some proxy wars, obviously. We had proxy wars. We had uh, covert killing of people. We had economic uh, war. We had propaganda war. But we didn't have bombs and bullets killing each other. And so I'm about, in this book, I mean, by war, I mean thousands of people killing each other. That's, that's what means war. And in the case of the Cold War, People invented a strategy that was highly imaginative, uh, very adaptable, uh, but which coped with the threat successfully. So I would say if we were trying to think about the situation today, we don't want to manage the U.S. decline like Britain, and we don't want a Cold War just like the Soviet Union. This is a whole new different situation. But from each of these cases, we can get some clues, uh, as well as from the mistakes that were made in the cases that led to war, the new strategy that would have to be created will be as strangely different, if it's going to be successful, from all of the conventional conversation today as the Cold War was from the conversations previously. And one of the most powerful passages in this book is when you describe just how big, how powerful China is becoming. And one of the many reasons to read this book is just to wrap your mind around the scale of blockbuster growth that we're talking about. I mean, every two years, the increment of Chinese growth is greater than India's whole economy. China has already surpassed the U.S. as an economic power, particularly in manufacturing and consumer goods. It's the largest automaker in the world. And it is only a matter of time. It's a question of when, not if, China becomes the dominant world superpower. Well, I think that uh, your point is exactly right. So uh, unless one's been watching China carefully, and maybe even if you have, it's hard to appreciate what's happened in a single generation. So in a single generation, a country that didn't appear in any of the international league tables has leaped to the top in every arena. Uh, I mean, never, never in history has a country risen so far, so fast, on so many different dimensions. In fact, in the chapter on the rise of China, I quote Vaclav Havel's good line in which he says, things have happened so fast, we haven't yet had time to be astonished. So everywhere in every arena, one sees China 
in our face. And by 2040, three times the size of America's if it, economy. If the, trend, if the trend should continue, because do the math. There's four times as many Chinese as there are Americans. So if they're only one-fourth as productive as Americans, the two economies are equal. So they're not that. Suppose they're only half as good as we are, half as productive. Well, then they're twice as big as we are. And for Americans, and especially red-blooded Americans like me, even red-necked Americans, I'm from North Carolina, we know USA means number one. I can take off my, my shirt here and you'll find a tattoo, you know, that says USA means number one. So Is that actually idea, true? Not true, no. <laughs> that's a joke. But, 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 but if you took the, some breaking but if news you took, there. But if you took the skin off, you would... You would you, basically, Americans under, believe, most Americans, people like me, believe that we have been number one all our life. That's the way the world is supposed to be. Somewhere in the Bible or in the Constitution <laughs> or in the laws of nature, it says USA means number one. And one of the points one. you make in the book is that, you know, in large part, this is due to the fact that we have the biggest economy because then we can fund the biggest military, the biggest intelligence apparatus, the biggest diplomatic the apparatus. The biggest foreign aid assistance, the biggest this, Exactly. The biggest it's not that we're inherently better. And so if another country is three times the economy and they're therefore three times the resources to do this stuff, are we going to be number one anymore? Probably not. Probably not. And I think you, in the in the book, uh, I give you an abbreviated version of the chart I give to my students in my course at Harvard. So the, the top of the chart says, when could China become number one? And I give 26 indicators. So biggest auto manufacturer, as you say, but biggest cell phone manufacturer, biggest smartphone user, biggest robot producer, uh, biggest uh, artificial intelligence, biggest economy. And students in the Harvard class say, oh, maybe 2040 for this one. We make them you know, pick a number for each one of the 26 indicators. Then I have chart two. And chart two, the top of which says already. So every one of these 26 indicators, China has overtaken the U.S. But there's an asterisk attached to all of this, all of these projections in the future, which is if the present trends continue. Right. And a lot of people take a darker, dimmer view of Chinese authoritarianism, of their governance model. Condi Rice just came out with a new book about democracy in which she notes that there are 180,000 protests a year in China. There's still no reliable rule of law. There's mass seizure of people's assets. They, the Chinese government has to employ over a million people just to censor the internet. And so is this model of an open economy but a closed political system actually sustainable? Sustainable, or is there going to be some disruption over time? It's a great, great question. And I would say a, uh, a fundamental question about China is their governance system. Uh, I say in the conclusion of the book, a fundamental question about uh, the U.S. is our governance system. Oh, no, we're in perfect. Fact, We've got uh, it all figured out. Exactly. Things are just working fine. So basically, if you're trying to think of you know what would be a conceivable uh, accommodation between the two parties for the time being. Let's imagine that there were adult supervision for a second in international affairs. Of course, they're not. We we live in a Hobbesian world. There's nobody uh, who's superior to Xi Jinping and Trump. But let's just imagine hypothetically. I do this in my class. Let's really stretch that there ourselves. Were, okay? yeah. So here's a Martian strategist uh, who's an adult. And she parachutes in to Mary Lago for the summit between she and Trump. And she says, guys, I have a couple of things to point out to you. First, each of you have large, probably insurmountable problems. That's first. Secondly, 
the most important of these problems occur entirely within your own border, not the problems you're talking about between the, between the two of you. So I have an idea for you. Why don't you take a little breather, like Pericles did with uh, Sparta in the 30-year peace. The 30-year peace basically said, why don't we just each focus on our own problems for 30 years, and then we'll get back to Trying whatever. to kill each other, That's yeah. That's right. And so it's interesting, you know, to think the unthinkable yet again before we move on to other topics. What does a war between the U.S. and China look like? Is there a, a war between these two nuclear powers that's anything but unmanageable, catastrophic, millions and millions of people dying on both sides? Uh, again, great question. So uh, anybody who's looked at this carefully, and the Defense Department and the Chinese counterpart have done, uh, can see that a full-scale war between the U.S. and China would be catastrophic for both, and nobody would win. Nobody wants war. Everybody understands a war would be catastrophic. So if that was the case, how could a war happen? Well, wars happen if we look at the previous cases, not because somebody wanted war, but because some third-party action or event becomes a, a match that makes a fire, at the end of which people are somewhere where they don't want to be. So let's take in this case. So I'd say the most most likely path today to war between the U.S. and China, in which large numbers of Chinese and Americans are killing each North other, Korea. goes just like this, North Korea. So North Korea will, in the months ahead, either conduct ICBM tests that will give it the capability to strike Los Angeles with a nuclear weapon, that's on the one hand, or it will be interrupted. That's on the other. So I've written about this as a Cuban Missile Crisis in slow motion. So, so just to back up, the scenario is North Korea has the capability or proves that they have the capability to strike Los Angeles with a nuclear-tipped missile. Trump decides to strike the North Koreans. To prevent them reaching that final point, yes. And North Korea responds by killing more than a million people in Seoul, in Seoul South Korea, which they have the capability of doing right. today. Right. And then the U.S. and South Korea declare war on North Korea. Right. And and where do the dominoes fall after that? Well, okay, then it, then the game becomes thick because if we if the if we attack North Korea in order to make sure it can't conduct another round of attack, including nuclear weapons against South Korea or against Japan, well, possibly some of those weapons get fired in the process. So now you could even have nuclear weapons exploding in South Korea or Japan. Whereupon, as Colin Powell once said to the North Korean counterparts, he said, the moment a nuclear weapon explodes on the soil of any ally of the U.S., we're going to turn the whole of North Korea into a charcoal biscuit. Okay? <laughs> Uh, so maybe when then we just simply say, too much is too much, uh, toast the whole place. And yeah. we can do that. Yeah. Okay, that would be one possibility. And then we have to see how does that play with the Chinese. The more likely possibility, I think, is that we'll end up with a ground war in South Korea in which the South Koreans and the Americans will otherwise capture North Korea and unify the country unless China enters the war. But we should remember what happened in the first Korean War. Again, Americans don't do much history here, but it's worth to remember. In 1950, 
North Korea attacked South Korea, almost captured the whole country. U.S. came to the rescue very last minute, uh, pushed the North Koreans back up the peninsula, were approaching the Chinese border, the border between North Korea and, uh, and China. The Chinese then, out of the blue, to the bedazzlement of MacArthur, attacked and pushed, beat the Americans right back down the peninsula to the 38th parallel where the war ended because China was determined that no American military ally was going to be on its border. Even in 1950, when it was 150th the size of the U.S., the U.S. had a monopoly of nuclear weapons. U.S. had just finished World War II by dropping bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and that China attacked the U.S. So most people believe that China would not tolerate a unified Korea that was a military ally of the U.S. It seems like the rational way to prevent this, and acknowledging we're not in a fully rational world here, at least in terms of the North Korea track, is to get the Chinese to prevent the North Koreans from going nuclear. That's we would accept the status quo if North Korea weren't threatening our country or our allies with nuclear weapons. But the question is, can the Chinese do that? And will the Chinese do that? Well, you're you're channeling Trump, okay, and, and I think in a way that most Americans would. So when most Americans hear of this, I mean, I've, I talk to, you know, people in the government as well as students or others, they say, I don't believe this, okay. I mean, a little impoverished uh, pipsqueak cannot have nuclear weapons. I mean, nobody would allow that. And I say, well, they, they do. The American intelligence community says they have an arsenal, 20, 25 nuclear weapons now. I mean, it is unbelievable if you were just, you know, not paying attention. But, it, but it's a fact. But do the Chinese have the capacity or the will to influence the North Koreans not to proceed any further with their weapons program? Well, yes and no. So yes, okay. So the Chinese control a lifeline for North Korea. If the Chinese were prepared to collapse the North Korean regime, they could do so because 85% of the trade with North Korea goes to China and 90% of the energy. So the oil that keeps Panyong's factories, uh, their military... Uh, their heat in the winter, uh, all of this comes from China. And if they were prepared to squeeze that lifeline, they could squeeze them. Now, what would then happen? And this is, I mean, I've sat down with Chinese and game this several times. And they say, well, okay, so let's imagine the place collapses. Now we have a, what, chaos, a civil war. Are the South Koreans and you going to get involved in this situation? And I say, well, uh, the South Koreans are not going to let their cousins in North Korea starve without trying to be helpful to them, and they're going to have an interest in the matter. And so, well, maybe they'll get engaged a little bit. But And then, well, if they do, won't they end up inheriting the whole of Korea? I would say that would be the normal thing. They're a very successful country and wealthy. These guys are poor and miserable. You know, it'll take them a long time like East Germany to get the country back together, but I think that's probably how it'll come out. Well, then they say, so there's going to be a U.S. military ally on our border. And Back you have to military their old troops. bugaboo from 1950. You, yeah. That's the reason why we went to war with you earlier. And the scenario you're describing is that basically the North Koreans don't buy the idea that the Chinese would really squeeze them because they know that the Chinese don't want to have an American ally on their border. Absolutely. And therefore their leverage, well... Impressive on paper is maybe, That's you know, not great. so much in reality. 100%. 100%. 
So when we come back with Graham Allison, we're going to talk about what, if anything, the United States can do to prevent a war with China. And we're also going to talk about some other foreign policy issues. Uh, Stay with us. Just a reminder, next week, Brian and I will be talking with actor and comedian Matt Walsh. You probably know him as Press Secretary Mike McClintock on HBO's Veep, one of my favorite shows. So what questions do you have about Matt's life, career, and how he really feels about Julia Louis-Dreyfus? Call us and leave a message at 929-224-4637. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. What can we do right now to get us off the path toward inevitable, horrible, destructive war with the Chinese? I say this is not a problem to be fixed the way Washington likes to fix the problem. The rise of a 5,000-year-old civilization with 1.4 billion people is not fixable. This is a chronic condition to be endured and managed for a generation. So that's the point one. Point two, in this case especially, diagnosis must precede prescription. Just like if you went to the emergency room and the doctor said, get on the gurney, I'm pulling you into the operating room and I'm going to do surgery, you would say, wait wait a minute, how about a diagnosis first? So diagnosis should precede prescription. This book is mainly about trying to help us with the diagnosis. 
okay, if we were just adults trying to work out some of these problems, are these workable or is it really this is hopeless? So I would say, well, now, wait a minute. What's on the asset side and what's on the liability? On the asset side, first, we both have nuclear arsenals that produce mutual assured destruction. So if you decide to kill me, you can, but only by committing suicide. So everybody knows that's a lousy idea. And as I say, everybody in the national security establishment, both places, gets that. Secondly, we have economic interrelationship here, which is so thick that if there were a war between the U.S. and China, basically Walmarts would be empty and Chinese factories would be producing goods for nobody. And the U.S. couldn't get loans to pay for our deficit. So basically, these are thickly interdependent. Now, that e economic interaction has allowed both of us to be wealthier than we would be otherwise. You're so gonna, there's kind of economic mutual assured destruction yeah, as well exactly. as military okay. mutual good, assured destruction. Good, good, yeah, absolutely. Then thirdly, there's climate. Now, that's not agreed to by everybody in the U.S. But and we'll every, get to that in a moment. But every every... A uh, person uh, who, with any scientific competence who's looked at this agrees that on the current trajectory, we may make an uninhabitable climate for our great-great-great-grandchildren 100 years from now. So if if we succeeded in doing that, that's clearly contrary to the vital interests of the U.S. So is there any way the U.S. could solve this problem without China? No. We're the two biggest greenhouse gas emitters. Together, we may not be able to solve it. We may not. But for sure, independently, we can only fail. I wonder if we're going to look back from a strategic perspective as 2017, uh, as the year that we, the United States, ceded global leadership. If you look at our withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which basically delegated the rules of the road in Asia to the Chinese, if you look at our withdrawal from climate leadership, uh, as we pulled out of the Paris deal, you look at the the anger and the resentment that we're triggering with the, the travel ban and sort of increasing isolationism, picking an alliance with Russia in effect over an alliance with NATO by not reaffirming our commitment to all for one and one for all, and, and being consumed by political infighting here at home. Is this kind of a, a pivot point that you know, we need to focus on and and reverse, or America's going to go off in a very bad direction. Well, I, I, don't, I don't like the implication of the question, but I can't uh, resist it. I mean, I think that's the logic of the situation. And I've been trying to look at the cases that I've seen previously with a rising and ruling power in which basically the ruling power retreated from the field of leadership in areas of its strength. And I haven't been able to find one, but I'm hoping maybe, you know, We're somebody, breaking new ground here. Well, we, we may be breaking new ground, but I'm hoping maybe that somebody else will, you know, will find some analog because generally what happens, the ruling power tries to strengthen its relationships with other powerful entities that allow it to uh, help shape the environment for the rising power so that it has to adapt as opposed to allowing it to lead in, in writing new rules, which clearly will be disadvantageous for us. 
And in effect, you can argue that that's what the Obama administration was trying to do with both the the Paris deal on climate change, with the Trans-Pacific Partnership on trade, to some extent with the Iran deal on nuclear weapons. Uh, Absolutely, In in all three cases. And I think in all three cases, recognizing that our power is not uh, unlimited, uh, that we have to find compromises, but that we would do the best we can. So the Iran deal is not what you would want, but is an amazing deal in terms of what would be feasible because for a decade, here's Iran, uh, you know, postponing any nuclear advance. That's pretty fantastic compared to the alternative, which would have been Basically, either Iran would be a nuclear weapon state or we would be at war with Iran. So in the climate arena, while I was not a huge fan of Paris in terms of its accomplishments uh, in actually resolving the climate challenge, which is way, way, way more severe— so you're As, kind of with the Nicaraguans. You you weren't signed on to no, Paris because you didn't think it went far enough. No, I I I signed on, but but with with the notion that we shouldn't delude ourselves. This is the, what this did is say we all recognize the problem, we recognize the magnitude of the problem, we recognize that we have to cope with this together. We recognize that the big uh, greenhouse gas emitters have to carry most of the burden, and we're making a big step. I mean, not a big step, a small step, but a real step in the right direction. And I thought the most interesting part for me of the Paris Accord was the agreement both by private venture capitalists like Bill Gates and the governments to invest heavily in new technologies that may transform the problem. Because I don't think we're going to solve the problem with the current parameters that we have technically. I think unless there's a technological breakthrough that makes it possible for people to have electricity and and light bulbs and air conditioning, uh, and not ruin the climate, we we will get screwed. So I th- I'm, and I since I'm an optimist, I think I think we will get there. But I think we part of the way we get there is as Paris did to say, okay, here we have some benchmarks that we're reaching towards. Plus, then lots of people in lots of different countries. So this wasn't just the U.S. and China. This was the Europeans. Very importantly, the Europeans. And if you're this you is 194 listen, countries, yeah, but but also the big little guys coming along for whatever reason, big guys. Germany was playing an absolutely crucial role in this. And as Mrs. Merkel said, I mean, for her, the climate thing, she feels it as existential a threat as she feels the threat of what we would call terrorism or what, uh, you know, Russia or others. So she thinks, well, wait a minute. And if for the 100 years I've left an environment that Germans can't live in, I, I can't give an account of my chancellorship. No, that just makes no and sense. And yet in an act of intentional or unintentional misunderstanding, the Trump administration is saying, oh, well, the Paris Accord imposes all these regulations on the United States that'll kill our economy, when the fact is the standards in the deal are voluntary. Each country sets its own plan and its own carbon limitations itself. If Trump really felt like what Obama agreed to in terms of carbon reduction was too tough, he could have weakened those standards oh, without leaving the agreement. So if, this was really a political statement more than a substantive one. If, if I were going to uh, write an up-in on this, I'm not, because I'm focused on the China subject right now, but I would call it uh, Napoleon's great line, because this is worse than a crime. This is a blunder. Yeah. <laughs> so you're a, a very famous 
defense strategist. And it really struck me when uh, General McMaster and Gary Cohn, the president's top economic and national security advisors, wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal in which they basically said, uh, the world is not a global community, but an arena where nations, NGOs, and businesses engage and compete for advantage we bring to this forum unmatched military, political, economic, cultural, and moral strength. Rather than deny this elemental nature of international affairs, we embrace it. And so what do you think are the consequences of this sort of Hobbesian way of looking at the world? Well, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, H.R. McMaster. I know him for a long, long time. And I'm grateful that he's serving in this job. I know Gary Cohen a little bit, not not much. Do you think uh, General McMaster really believes what he wrote in this op-ed? I do, I do, I do. I I think that he believes what he thinks. And so there's a there's a schizophrenia in this a little bit. So on the one hand, uh, uh, we talk about a global community and the international rule based order and. uh, uh, the uh, subordination of sovereignty uh, and globalization. Uh, and there's a lot of rhetoric around that. On the other hand, uh, does the U.S. ever ask permission when we want to go uh, topple Saddam Hussein or Gaddafi or conduct airstrikes on uh, uh, terrorists in some other country or drop into Pakistan and kill Osama bin Laden? No. Well, and we rely on our friends and allies, not just because often what we're doing is in their interest, but because they're our friends and allies, and we've helped them over the years, and they've helped us, and it's a it's a mutually beneficial relationship and not necessarily a purely transactional one. Well, that's a different point, but yes, I mean, I agree with that. And I know we have to go in a few minutes, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a couple of questions that Katie wanted me to uh, bring to your attention. Please. The first is, there's been a lot of talk about President Trump rolling back the rapprochement or normalization of relations with Cuba that President Obama really started. You're obviously one of, if not the greatest expert on the Cuban Missile Crisis. What do you think would happen if we were to go back to status quo ante, you know, what the world looked like before President Obama started um, changing our relationship with Cuba? Well, again, I I think this reflects some political impulses rather than strategic impulses. And uh, I think it would be a mistake. I think that if you look at it, uh, the only communist and communist-like countries that have survived have the ones that have been able to isolate themselves from the world. So North Korea is kind of the poster child. Cuba has been as well. Every other country that became engaged in the world where information comes into them and trade comes to them and otherwise, what happens? Cockamamie systems get overthrown by their own regimes. Look and see what happens. So rarely in, in, in policy world do you get a kind of almost scientific experiment in which you've got a lot of countries. Either you isolate them or you engage them. In the case of the engagement, basically freedom and market economies over Overwhelm the regimes that they have. In a few cases, they isolate themselves and they sustain it. So I would say we've been way better off undermining Cuba by the policies that are going forward. And I whether at this stage, if Trump were to roll it back, I, I haven't looked at the details enough to judge. 
And lastly, the hope of the foreign policy establishment in many ways has been the presence of all these generals in the Trump administration, mm-hmm. Mattis and McMaster and Kelly. But the the other side of that is, as people say, if you're a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Do you worry about too much of a sort of militarization of American foreign policy in this administration? So in a word, yes. So I would say on the one hand and the other. On the one hand, there's no question whatever that in H.R. McMaster and Mattis and Kelly, we have outstanding Americans and great and wise uh, military leaders. I'd be happy to, you know, give my uh, wallet to any one of them and trust them that they would do uh, well and wisely. On the other hand, it's not for nothing that the Constitution and the tradition from George Washington on has been civilian leadership of the military. Because if you're a military man, your whole career is about operating instruments of violence to achieve national objectives. And especially if you're part of the greatest military machine the world has ever seen with a set of hammers that can nail anything that looks like a nail, you're inclined to look for a hammer and for a nail. And I think if I watch what's happening both in Afghanistan and in Iraq, and also to some extent in Syria and a little bit in Yemen, you see now a first Uh, order push for military instruments over other instruments. And in particular, since President Trump uh, basically uh, in his budget reflects a respect for more hammers and a uh, slicing back of the other instruments. Now, to his credit, uh, Mattis has said, you know, if you don't have a very active State Department, including reducing its capabilities by reducing its budget, then you're going to need to buy from me more bombs and bullets because I can go bomb anybody you want me to bomb and I can go shoot anybody you want me to shoot. But that's not going to be the end of the story and that's not the better way to deal with the problem. Do you think we're going to be in Iraq and Afghanistan for the foreseeable future? I'm afraid yes. Uh, And uh, I think neither of them will turn out well. Well, on that happy note, (laughs) Professor Graham Allison, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Special thanks this week to Ryan Connor for recording this conversation off-site in L.A. Thanks also, as always, to our producer, Gianna Palmer, and to our sound engineer, Jared O'Connell. Allison Bresnick does social media for us, and we thank her. Of course, thanks to Emily Bina for her part in producing this show, and to Nora Ritchie for additional editorial assistance. Mark Phillips, thank you so much for our theme music. Katie Couric and I are the executive producers of this podcast. And please remember, you all can leave us a voicemail at 929-224-4637. And don't forget to call in with your questions for Matt Walsh from HBO's Veep. He is hilarious. He's going to be on our show next week. We're very excited about that. You can also email us at comments at currickpodcast.com. Please be nice because it's really painful if you're not. Find me on social media at Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram, katie.couric on Snapchat, and Brian is goldsmithb on Twitter. And hey, if you like our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That really uh, keeps us going and keeps the podcast going, actually. And don't forget to subscribe as well. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.